John chapter 5 is where we're at this morning. As you're making your way there, pop quiz, it, said, it has been said that there's two things that are certain in life. What are they? Death and taxes, right? <clears throat> I, got it, uh, I got home this week and uh, went to my mailbox, and I opened the mail, and uh, there was a little envelope from the tax board. Who likes getting envelopes from the IRS or the tax board? Right? And I don't know about you, but I have a prohibitive conscience. So I get a letter in the mail from the IRS. I'm thinking I'm getting audited, right? And I, and I try to be so, you know, careful and I use an accountant and, and all of this stuff. But, like, you know, I've just got this phobia of being audited. I don't want to be audited, right? And the big idea of our text today is that Jesus is Lord and that the day is coming when we're all going to be audited, right? And the question is, are you ready for that day? That's the big idea of our text. Now, this is really part two of the message that we started last week. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you uh, to, uh, to listen to that message. But uh, just, just the dynamic that we looked at last week as we got into the text, we, we looked at Romans 8.28 kind of as the setup for last week, that in all things God works together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And <clears throat> that phrase works together in Romans 8.28, we get the word synergy from that. And uh, synergy means when you've got two uh, or an assortment of things that maybe are seemingly unrelated, how they work together. That's the idea of synergy. And uh, what we saw is that God combines and coordinates diverse event, uh, events for his good purposes. And so here in John chapter 5, Jesus uh, records the third, or he performs the third miracle that John records. Certainly Jesus performed more, more miracles than that, but John highlights just a, a select few miracles that Jesus performed. And so <clears throat> last week we saw that he performed the third miracle that John highlights. He heals a man who had been afflicted for 38 years. And in synergistic fashion, God working all things together for good, this miracle serves a couple of key purposes here in our text. It served to provide care for this man, certainly. That was the focus of our, of our uh, uh, time last week. But secondly, it served to provoke conflict. Um, with the arrogant religious leaders. And if you were with us last week, you saw that we made the observation that the afflicted man in our story, this man uh, at the Pool of Bethsaida, afflicted 38 years, who Jesus uh, graciously heals, that, that he had been afflicted for 38 years. And just as he had been afflicted for 38 years, the nation of Israel also endured 38 years in the wilderness because of the sin of unbelief. If you read in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, you'll, you'll read that specific fact that they wandered there for 38 years. And Jesus could have healed this man any old time he pleased. This was not a crisis situation. This was a chronic situation. He'd been in this condition for 38 years. And so Jesus didn't have to heal this man in the manner and fashion and timing in which he did. And yet, he chose a very public place, he chose a very public occasion, and he chose a very controversial time. Why? Because he was forcing the issue. He was identifying the sin of unbelief with these religious leaders. And we made the observation last week that sometimes the Lord, in his love for us, will force the issue. 
forces the issue in our marriage, forces the issue with our kids, forces the issue in some other way. And in that moment, we have an opportunity when God forces the issue in our life. We have the opportunity either to respond to God and to repent, or we can resist the work of the Lord and we can remain in our sin. And so we read here in our story, um, verse 5 tells us that this man was there at the pool of Bethsaida, afflicted 38 years. Jesus saw him laying there in verse 6, knew that he'd been in that condition a long time, and he asked him the question, do you want to be made well? The guy makes some excuses, and then Jesus says to him in verse 8, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And we continue, verse 9 says, and immediately the man was made well, he took up his bed, and he walked, and... That day was the Sabbath. Seems like a throwaway line. Really, it's the hinge on which everything turns. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, not celebrating the fact that, hey, man, you've been in this condition 38 years. Praise God, you're doing great. What a wonderful thing. No, they say, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. The Sabbath is a day of rest. God established the Sabbath as a gift for mankind, right? It's a day to honor the Lord. It's a day for, for you to be blessed, right? And Jesus said in Mark's gospel that the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not for people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath, right? Why did he emphasize that? Well, it's because the Jews had turned that gift into a burden. They added rules and regulations to what was supposed to be just this wonderful gift of, hey, chill, take, take, a, take a deep breath, relax, worship the Lord, right? No, they added rules and regulations to it, specifically 39 rules and regulations, and then they elevated their man-made rules above the word of God, and they added penalties for breaking them. And so the penalty, if you willfully violated the Sabbath, was that they would stone you to death, right? And we're kidding around. So when Jesus here heals this poor guy on the Sabbath, rather than rejoice, these guys are outraged, and so they confront the man, and he answered them, verse 11, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. They're like, hey, it's not lawful for you to be healed on the Sabbath. The guy's like, hey, you know, I, this guy made me. He made me well, right? <clears throat> and he told me to take up my bed and walk. And then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But, verse 13 says, the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, literally, that word means to dodge, right? He had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. He didn't want to be mobbed by everybody. Heal me too, heal me too, heal me too. He's operating on a divine timetable. He's operating for a divine purpose. So Jesus is stealth mode man, heals the dude and dodges everybody else, right? That's what the text uh, says. That's what it means. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. We looked at this last week and he said to him, see, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed, now he knows who it was, and so he rats Jesus out. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well, right? For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, and they sought to kill him. Why? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So, what happens now? 
Jesus answers them. He doesn't, he doesn't try to explain things away. What Jesus is doing here is he's pouring gasoline on the fire. Remember, he wanted to provide care for this man, but he also wants to provoke these guys because he wants to confront their sin. So they're all freaked out about the Sabbath. Jesus answers them, verse 17, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Here's Jesus' point. Jesus' point here is that the Sabbath rest that God provided for mankind was broken when mankind sinned. And ever since the fall, God doesn't take a day off, right? He spends every day seeking the lost. The psalmist said as much in uh, Psalm 121. He said, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes, from, from, comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. Here it is. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And so Jesus here, rather than de-escalating the conflict, he's provoking the Jewish leaders. And with this statement, he further provokes the Jewish leaders. Why? Because they understood immediately what Jesus was saying. Look at verse 18. Therefore... Because Jesus said to them, my father has been working until now and I have been working. There, and we, we hear, we understand, we, we refer to God as, as our father. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But this idea referring to God as father was unique in this setting. It was new to these guys, my father. And so therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Hey, we don't want to just kill you because you violated the Sabbath. They sought all the more to kill him because not only did he, he had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, and here's what they understood, making himself equal with God. That phrase, equal with God, or the word specifically equal, it means equal in quantity, and it means equal in quality. And so not only doesn't Jesus deny that he worked on the Sabbath, but now he says why he worked on the Sabbath, because he's God. And he's doing the work as his father continually is doing the work. And he's driving home the point that he's equal with God. Notice in verse 19, Jesus answered, they're indignant. We're going to kill you because you broke the Sabbath. Now we're really going to kill you because you make yourself equal with God. And Jesus is like, well, you're going to love this then. Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these, uh, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. I mean, at this, you can just see these guys like, boom, their head is exploding, right? Um, and um, so, uh, verse 22, for the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Uh, he says in verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the, the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus is twisting the knife right now. 
yeah, I violated the Sabbath. Why? Because y'all broke the Sabbath, and, and then, you know, God ain't clocked out since. God the Father's been working overtime uh, to save as many people as he can, and I'm working too because I and the Father are one. And so what Jesus just emphasizes here to them is, look, his works, Jesus' works are equal with God. His power is equal with God. His right to judge is equal with God. His honor is equal with God. And that God loves him as his only begotten son. Here's why this matters to you today. Verse 24, most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. What Jesus says is that the only thing separating you and me and these religious leaders from eternal wrath is belief. And notice that Jesus prefaces verse 24 with this phrase, most assuredly, I say to you. The idea is what Jesus is saying is, listen, you better pay attention to what I'm about to say because it's really, really important. And then now to add emphasis, Jesus says it again, verse 25, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus here is launching into a description of three resurrections. And here in verse 25, we have the picture of the first resurrection, the resurrection of lost sinners into eternal life. Understand, this is a resurrection that happens in this life here on earth, right? Jesus says, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He's not talking about the people who have died physically. He's talking about the people who are dead spiritually. Understand, apart from the saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are a dead man walking. You're dead spiritually, and you're dying physically, and you are dying emotionally. This is what Paul was referring to when he talked to the Ephesians, and he said, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You ever taken a group photo? Who do you look for first? You, right? You take a group photo, you want to see, did I have something in my teeth? Do I have a goofy look on my face, right? You're looking for how do you look in the group photo? Well, Paul here, he gives a group photo of the Ephesians. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? Have you seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Anybody remember that movie, The Sixth Sense? What's the catchphrase? I see dead people, right? What's the plot twist? If, you've, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to ruin it for you. What's the plot twist? The plot twist is that Malcolm Crow, played by Bruce Willis, he's dead. He just doesn't know it yet, right? And here's the thing. In a spiritual sense, this is the state of everybody apart from faith in Jesus Christ. They're dead. They just ain't got the memo yet, right? Maybe that's you today. Just hit the pause button right there and ask, do you know where you're going to spend eternity when you die? Do you know if you're going to heaven or not? And if you say, yeah, I'm going to heaven, how do you know? How do you know? Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? Because you can be alive physically, but dead spiritually. 
right? But the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Paul told the Romans, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, here's the thing. The Bible makes it clear that we are all sinners by nature and by choice and that the wages of sin is death. What that means, wages. You, the end of the week, it's payday. Pay me for what I've earned, right? And give me my wages. That's the, that's the idea. So what you have earned in and of yourself just as a person who, who lives on this earth and occupies the body that you do, you have earned death because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the wages of sin is death, right? But, but this is, this is the, the thing. In order to escape death, you have to hear and you have to respond to the voice of Jesus. This is what Jesus meant in verse 24 when he said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. That phrase, passed from death into life, literally means to change the country or the place where you live. And the idea is that death is the country, is the place that you live apart from Jesus Christ. And your only passport out of the country in which you live is to hear and to respond to Jesus. The second resurrection that Jesus talks about is Jesus' coming resurrection from the grave. Look at verse 26. Um, Pick it up in context, verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. This second resurrection that Jesus now talks about is his own personal coming resurrection from the grave. Understand, the message of Jesus' gospel that saves you and me hinges entirely on the method of the gospel. And the method of the gospel is the cross. Paul told the Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen, understand, because God is holy, because he is righteous, he has to judge sin. If he did not judge sin, he would neither be holy nor would he be righteous. He's a righteous judge. If you, you know, killed somebody and you appeared before a judge and the judge said, eh, it's cool, you can leave, everybody would be outraged. Why? Because he did not do justly. He did not judge righteously. And so as a righteous judge, God has to judge sin. And we have seen that the judgment for sin is death, right? But God doesn't want that to be you. And so what he did was he took that judgment upon himself. Paul told the Corinthians this. He said, he made him who knew no sin to be sin or to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ went to the cross and took 
all of your sins upon himself, all of your sins past, all of your sins present, all of your sins future, Jesus took those upon himself, right? Our sins were imputed to him, and his righteousness then was imputed to us. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. Paul told the Romans, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the idea that Jesus conveys here is that he will indeed be crucified. He, he, he might say to these religious leaders, I see you gnashing your teeth at me. You already wanted to kill me because I, I worked on the Sabbath. Now you for sure want to kill me because I told you I'm God. And guess what? You are going to kill me, right? He will indeed be crucified, but God the Father will raise him up. And this was Peter's message, by the way, on the day of Pentecost, if you remember in Acts chapter 2. After Jesus had risen from the grave and he had uh, passed the baton, so to speak, to the disciples and told them, you know, you continue my work and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them and they, they're, they're out there and, and all these people are gathering together. They're going, gee whiz, look at this. What on earth does this mean? And Peter steps up. He goes, I'll tell you what it means. And he preaches the gospel. And he says this as he preaches the gospel there in Acts chapter 2. He says, people of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed with the help of lawless Gentiles. You nailed him to a cross and you killed him. But, and here it is, God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life for death could not keep him in its grip. And so Jesus here is saying, look, the first resurrection is y'all are walking dead and you need to come to saving faith in me and live spiritually. The second resurrection he talks about is the fact that he in fact will be crucified and will raise from, be raised from the dead. By the way, the Apostle Paul said that that key truth, that Jesus in fact was crucified for our sins, is so important that if it didn't happen, if Jesus wasn't crucified, if he didn't rise from the grave on the third day, then our faith is useless. We might as well be out drinking and partying and just living life to the fullest because Christianity would be nothing. It would mean nothing if Jesus had not risen from the grave. And so Jesus says, first resurrection is you all need to wake up and come to a saving faith and be resurrected from being a zombie and being spiritually dead. You need to, to know that, that I will be resurrected. And the third resurrection Jesus describes is the future resurrection of believers and non-believers. This is when you and I will be judged. Look at John chapter 26. He says, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. I'm going to be resurrected by the Father when you guys kill me. Verse 27, and has given him, Jesus Christ, authority to execute judgment also, because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. Understand this. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man to die once, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed to man to die once, 
but after this, the judgment. Understand, there's two different types of judgment that are in view here in verse 29. Jesus says there are those who will be resurrected to life, and he says there are those who will be resurrected to condemnation. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that those who are not in Jesus Christ, those who have not placed a saving faith in Christ, or those who are trusting in their own works to save them, well, I'll expand on that in a minute, where you go is a place called the Great White Throne Judgment. We'll look at that in a half a second, but it's described in Revelation chapter 20. Those who are in Christ, who have trusted Jesus' work on the cross for them, then you will go to a place called the Judgment Seat of Christ. And we'll look at that. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So Jesus, he explained the first part of this process in Matthew's gospel. Let me put this on the screen for you. Matthew 25 verses 31 through 33. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, that includes you, and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats He'll set on His left hand. Now, having separated these two groups. You got the sheep group, you got the goat group. And so the goat group, this is those who have not received forgiveness in Jesus Christ. They, we, they have either flat out rejected Jesus or they have an intellectual belief in Jesus, but they really have not placed their saving faith in him. They're really trusting in their works to save them. And so what happens is uh, they go before the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20. Let's look at that. The Apostle John, writing in Revelation chapter 20, says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him, Jesus, who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according, not to Jesus' work, they were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, and he emphasizes this again, repeats it, it's important, saying it twice, each one judged according to his work, not Jesus' work. You do not want to be judged according to your works, right? Um, because your works can't save you. Uh, if your good works could save you, Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. Isaiah the prophet, he said this. He said, we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness, righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Right? There ain't nothing you can do to earn a right standing with God. Religion teaches that. Do good, try harder. Your conscience sometimes is like, oh, I got to do good, you know, and then, I, you know, if I do really good, God's going to be pleased with me. If I don't do good, God's going to be mad at me, all right? But you're not going to be able to earn salvation by the works that you do. Paul told the Ephesians, God saved you by his grace when you believed. 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. When you believe that he died on the cross for your sins in your place. When you believe, and you can, the Bible says, if you confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess means to agree with God. You're agreeing, I'm a sinner, I deserve hell, I believe you're the Savior, save me, right? God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this, it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So everybody who rejects Jesus and everybody who trusts in their own works to save them will be resurrected to condemnation. Now, having said that, there is a place for good works in the Christian life. While it's true that that your good works don't determine your salvation, they do demonstrate it, right? Uh, James talks about this in, in James chapter 2. And, and he says specifically in verse 26 that, that faith without works is dead. In other words, works don't provide your salvation, but they prove your salvation, right? And so this brings us to the other group that Jesus described in Matthew 25, the sheep group. You've got the goat groups trusting in their own works, right? Flat out rejecting Jesus. And then you've got this sheep group. Now, the sheep group are those who have received Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the hope for them, when they're audited, so to speak, right? They don't go to the great white throne judgment where they're judged according to their works. They appear before the judgment seat of Christ where they will face the judgment of their works. So what's the distinction? Well, Paul told the Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This isn't about rescue. Are you going to get into heaven? This is about reward, right? This is where the motive of your works are going to be tested. And Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3 that some of our works are like gold and silver and precious stones. And others of our work is like wood, hay, and stubble. And it goes before the fire of God, and the wood, hay, and stubble just gets burned up. What comes through are the gold and silver and precious stones. Here's how he says it. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward, not a rescue, not a, not a you get to go to heaven because of your good works. No, your good works will earn for you a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Some of y'all are going to be in the smoking section of heaven, and all the works that you did are going to get burned up, right? Because they were really self-centered and selfish, and it really wasn't a sacrifice to the Lord, right? Now, now what is it about reward? Isn't heaven reward enough? right? Isn't knowing that you're not going to suffer and be tormented in the lake of fire your entire life, isn't, isn't that like, you know, oh, I'm in, you know, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and in his presence is fullness of joy. Like, ain't that enough? Yes, it is. I don't know exactly what reward is, but I'll tell you what the book of Revelation shows. It shows this beautiful picture of the elders worshiping the Lord and they are wearing these crowns and they cast their crowns before the Lord in worship of him. The crowns that they received really are they're a reward for, for the works that they did. They have this thing with which to worship God, right? It's just this beautiful picture. So Jesus here, he's laid it on the line for these religious leaders. He basically says, look, you can believe that I'm the Christ, the Son of God, 
you could receive my message and be resurrected to life, or you can choose not to believe and be resurrected instead to judgment and wrath. Now, how do we know what Jesus says is true? Well, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 19, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, right? And so Jesus concludes now in our remaining verses, he's going to provide four witnesses to his testimony. I'm going to blow through this. I just want to cite for you up front what those four witnesses are. We're going to see the witness of John the Baptist. We're going to see the witness of the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus is going to provide the witness of the word of God. And as well, fourthly, he's going to provide the witness of Moses. Look in verse 31 as we read through the end of the chapter. He says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He's saying that in light of Deuteronomy 19.15, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And so he says, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know the witness uh, which uh, he witnesses of me is true. You've sent to John, speaking of John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light, but I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me uh, to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. The Bible says that, that the, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ, right? And what the Jews did is they encountered God in his law and they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to keep the law. And God up in heaven smacking his head is saying, oh, the, the law is supposed to show you that you can't keep it and that you need a savior and it's supposed to point you to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures, you think in them you have eternal life. How am I going to keep the law? How am I going to do good? How am I going to try harder? And he says, and these are they which testify of me. Trying to tell you, you need a savior. But you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men. But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who received honor from one another and do not see? How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from only God? Uh, do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, as we close here, I want you to understand the key words that Jesus uses here are the words witness and testimony and the word believe. Jesus uses the words witness and testimony 11 times in the verses we've just read, and he uses the word believe six times. And the point as we close is that the Pharisees were provided an ocean of proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But instead of believing the witness and the testimony that was provided for them, 
the witness of the Word of God, the witness of Moses, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the miracles that Jesus performed, they responded in rejection and wrath towards the Son of God. And likewise, guys, you and I have been provided with an ocean of proof. The writer of Hebrews says this, we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. I think it's Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's debated, but uh, Paul will say it was him. He says there in the opening verse, we must listen very carefully to the truth that we've heard or we may drift from it. And certainly this can be true of a person who's placed their saving faith in Jesus Christ. Right? You go down to the beach and you set all your stuff down and you go out surfing or you go out bodyboarding right? and uh, whatever it is and then you come back up and you're like, wait, somebody stole my stuff. And then you realize, no, all your stuff is there. It's just 200 yards up the beach because you drifted and you didn't realize it, right? And that can happen to Christians. Sometimes we drift, right? But this word drift means literally to slip away. And in the context of Hebrew chapter 2, and also in the context of our, our text here in John chapter 5, the idea is that the opportunity to hear and to receive the message of salvation, it can slip away. It can slip away. My friend Tony Clark this week, he posted on his social media that the longer you're okay with missing church, pretty soon you won't miss church. And the same can be said of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The longer that you resist the conviction of God, the harder your heart becomes until there's eventually no conviction left and you just slip away. That's what's in view here. And guys, the day is coming when you're going to be audited. Are you ready? That's the question. I'm going to pray for us, but, uh, but I want to put up three questions for, for those in your study groups and <coughs> for you to take a walk with this, week's, this week. Three questions related here to John chapter 5. Um, the Pharisees, they added rules to God's commands. We talked about that. Uh, and they then elevated these rules above the word of God. So my first question is, what are some of the ways that people, you perhaps, add rules and burdens to the word of God? Extra biblical rules and burdens that you say that, oh, we need to do this, right? I don't drink, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do. Like, what is it that you add to God's, to God's word? And, and three sub-questions to that. How does that adversely influence how we relate to God? Uh, how does that adversely influence how we relate to other believers? And how does that adversely influence how we relate to unbelievers. I'm going to plow through these. We'll put them up at the end of the service. They'll be up on the screen, so don't stress. Um, second question. Jesus says in verse 24, he who hears my word and believes has everlasting life. So the que second question, take a walk with this week. What things hinder you from hearing God's word and believing? Third question. We observe that the longer you're okay with something, the easier it becomes. 
And so take a walk with this question this week. What are you okay with that you shouldn't be? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning mindful of the fact, Jesus, you are Lord, you are God. And a day is coming when you will judge and every last one of us will be audited. Our works are going to be judged. Our faith is going to be judged.